0: survivance. Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 26, Indigenous Peoples' History of the U.S. My name is Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we're in Durham, North Carolina. Um, this is sort of a audio book report on a book that we read and we found really interesting. I read it quite a while back, and then I shared it with Teresa, and we read it together, and then Teresa pretty much read it again on her own. <laughs> so I guess we've all, both read it about twice now. It is, the the title of the book is An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, O-R-T-I-Z. What are some things that you liked or learned about from this book?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Uh, There were a lot of really interesting points in history that I had no idea about. But the way that Roxanne kind of introduces us to what we don't know. She is a professor, and she had her students, who were, I think, uh, college, university age, she asked them to draw a map of what the United States looked like at the time of its inception, so the colonies, and the students quickly started sketching what the United States looks like now, And they were really embarrassed when she's like, okay, time's up. Show your drawings. And people had just unconsciously shown (laughs) their... She said it was like a Rorschach test for Manifest Destiny.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I've come across the term Manifest Destiny before. And it's one of those terms that I have a little bit of a hard time wrapping my mind around. I kind of get more and more of an insight into it the more I research it. But I thought that was interesting how she like said that that was kind of the manifest destiny that still lives in us, that we draw the entire United States, even at a time that we all know we've been educated. The United States did not look like that at this time, but we have this belief that it was our destiny. It was kind of already ours. We just hadn't filled in the blank areas yet.
1: Yeah. And that, that leads me to another point that It's just like uncovering your ignorance, basically, at the beginning, well, maybe even throughout the entire book, because I didn't know a lot of history, I guess, but there's a term called terra nullius from, I think it was Roman or it sounds Latin, and it means there wasn't anything there on the land. It was just a blank space, as Gumby said, and that is kind of how our origin story of the United States is. It's based on that. We discovered America as if no one else was here before us.
0: Yeah, and she goes on to, like, I I thought it was interesting, the part of the book in the beginning when she was describing the United States before colonization, when it was just the, uh, I keep saying indigenous people, and I might keep using that term, but that was another interesting thing in the book that I've run into in other books from white people that have actually, like, interacted with the indigenous people instead of just talked about them like we're doing right now. Um, but they found that the term Indian is actually a lot more accepted among these these people. So I'm trying to, like my whole life, I've been taught by like white, well-meaning people that are clueless as freaking usual. Oh, use the term Native American. That's the the polite term. So I'm trying to realize like actually Indian is actually a more accepted term and Native American is loaded with propaganda. You know, like they weren't Americans, so there's kind of a, a loaded term there. Um,
1: Even more so, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz points out that most Indians or indigenous people, they would prefer to be known through their nation's name. So, and it, and especially if it's in their own language, like I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but the Diné instead of the Navajo, same people just in their language. It's Diné, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: And I have a hard enough time remembering like actually individuals' names. I'm kind of a, I know your face kind of guy, but I don't remember your name. So man, I struggle with like remembering the names of all these tribes and then realizing that even those freaking names are often wrong. So like I'm reading about the Comanche right now. They didn't call themselves the Comanche. That meant like the people who always fight us. That's what the other tribes called them. <laughs> they called themselves the Nirmirna. So <laughs> I get kind of overwhelmed in this topic that I really am interested in and a people that I really want to respect. Um, the names kind of throw me for a loop a lot.
1: All right. And this wasn't necessarily covered in the book, although the term first nation people or in, in general using the word nation instead of tribe came up. And I looked it up just Googling tribe versus nation. And this is also, you know, just something to consider, that a tribe doesn't really have the connotation of an organized nation. A, a, I don't even want to say a country, but having a government, having a system. And what Roxanne, the author of the book, was getting at was these people that were here, they weren't just running around and, you know, they, they, were, they had their own culture, and some of them did have their own kind of constitutions so to speak they had alliances they had treaties with other with other of na- the nations so just to consider the usage of the word nation instead of tribe even though we use tribe a lot and even the United States government uses the word tribe
0: yeah and even those of us who think we know better this idea of terra nullius i think it's sort of an, an insidious idea that you can find in your own mind quite a bit, you know, even though you know the land was peopled, um, it was interesting when she described exactly the diversity, the level of like commerce and trade and, and trails and the, the different people that interacted. And she even talked about there were Northeast tribes that started their fires with flint and steel, which is something I'd never heard of before. I kind of want to check up on that. <laughs> but yeah, it was really interesting to really get a picture of what that might have looked like before the white people started pouring in.
1: Yeah, and she said, and this was corroborated with other historians that she quoted in the book, but this was a quote that she had in her book that said, if North America had been a wilderness, it would probably still be a wilderness. And that Europeans that came here, they were not skilled at conquering wilderness but they were skilled at conquering people so when we read or when we were reading about how there were already systems of roads for trade with different nations where there were waterways to help with the cultivated crops of corn where there wasn't enough water they were they were taking water and diverting it to their fields this was an inhabited land and that really blew me away because I knew that, but I guess I didn't know the extent of it. There was even land management that we don't even know how to do today that Indians had perfected over generations. And that included anything from controlled burns to using those controlled burns to entice game animals like the bison and deer to come to a place where they weren't necessarily... Naturally grazing. So I thought that was really cool because then people that were in, like on the East Coast, maybe they didn't have a lot of bison there, but they were able to entice the bison to come a little bit closer to them so that they could survive in a different way.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think like anything you read that inspires you, if you're not critical of something, you're probably not paying close enough attention. Um, I'm always finding something that like, I'm not quite sure of. One of the things I didn't like when she was describing this country before the, the colonists got here is I almost felt like she was trying to defend the people here by our terms. Um, I, get, I get the feeling sometimes like she was describing them sort of like us. You know. She was like, oh, this is an advanced civilization. I don't tend to think of the whites, even what we have now, as an advanced civilization. I think of it more as a wrong turn. So to me, some of the beauty of the people being here is their differences, the fact that they didn't need all this crap that we we think we need now. And there were times in the book when, I, I don't know about you, Teresa, but I kind of got a feeling like um, the way she was describing it was sort of like saying they were a lot like us now, and I've read in other sources that the people that lived here before we got here, actually the things that were different from us are the things that really gave me the most sense of admiration, because they'd been here for millennia, and what the colonists found was a land of abundance, full of animals, full of fish, full of buffalo, full of good things. We've been here for a few hundred years, and (laughs) the land looks nothing like that, so don't defend the indigenous people the the indians to me by saying no they have great civilizations and they do all this thing and control their land and all the stuff the stuff you know that makes it sound like they're us because i don't know i just felt like it's the the different philosophy the whole different worldview the animism the land of like mystique and magic and spirits and I guess she didn't want like all the white scholars to kind of think like, oh, those naive indigenous people, they're running around talking to rocks. But to me, that's the very thing that does make them a, if not a superior culture, a admirable culture, a stronger culture maybe than ours.
1: Yeah. When you brought that up initially, I I was looking for it the second time I read through the book. And I can see that. I can agree with you that She really does make a point to talk about how the indigenous people, not just of uh, what we call North America, but also the the central, like what is now Mexico and in South America, they were like really good at mathematics and astronomy. and I believe it. I I don't say that, you know, we're better or the people in uh, the Middle East were better or something, but I just want it... Yeah, I guess I can see where Gumby's coming from as far as trying to compare it. But I also appreciate their contributions and their contributions coming from their culture, like their way of life. And getting back to the uh, the way that we view not just their culture, but our culture and our origin myth in this country, I never thought about really how histories come about, like what the surviving history is. But it's really important because there are words used even even in the retelling of uh, they were preparing for the, what would that be, the quincentennial or something celebration from 1492 to 1992. And Spain and the Vatican were trying to get the UN to help them with the celebrations for the encounter between the old world and the new world, and my God, they wanted the United, they wanted the United Nations to celebrate colonialism. that's basically what they wanted, but they carefully worded it as the encounter that happened and even just in in history, the words that we use to describe the United states it did you know it was once known as Colombia mm-hmm. And, of course, from Christopher Columbus. And even to this day...
0: District of Columbia. Yeah,
1: District of Columbia, Columbia University. And this made me kind of like throw up in my mouth. When the vice president is being introduced, the vice president of the United States, they play the song Hail Columbia. What the hell? That is so rude. Hmm. But we don't think about it like that because that's part of our origin myth. Or and our if origin you don't know narrative. much about
0: Columbus, it's kind of become a... Uh more widespread and popular critique of Columbus nowadays, you know, with the Indigenous People's Day competing with that. Um, but he was a bastard. I mean, mm-hmm. he showed up and he talked about how generous the people were. What were the people he ran into? The Tainos? I can't remember. I think it was the Tainos. T-A-I-N-O-S. Um, but he encountered them and he talked about how generous they were, how nice they were. And no sooner does he brag about how generous they are than he's kidnapping them. Uh, killing them, bringing them back to um, Italy, Spain, Spain, probably. Spain, against or his, ag- against their will. Um, well, they yeah. were so
1: nice to allow him to enslave them.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> this, this, what we call our heroes is a wonder.
1: And something else that happens with our origin narrative is it diffuses guilt and responsibility, as Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz points out in one aspect of our narrative. In telling the history, we say, well, really both sides, whether they were the settlers or the native people, the Indians, they were both kind of combatant. I mean, let's be real. Both of them were kind of killing people from the other side. That doesn't let us off the hook for what happened. Mm -hmm. But you can see where the way we tell, the way in which we tell our narrative begins to change our responsibility for what is currently happening in our culture and in our land.
0: Yeah, and I actually have more empathy now than I did when I was younger for the the cavalry, the U.S. military, the people on the frontier. Um, it was such so much more of a complicated issue, especially when the whites started encountering the Plains Indians, you know, in the 1800s, because of the. It sounds like the white people's way of war was extermination, genocide. You need to get out. We don't necessarily care about torturing you unless we have to. We just want you dead. you got to be gone. That's kind of the white uh, method. You know, we're, we're gentlemen. We're sophisticated. We're civilized. We line up in little rows and have matching uniforms. And, you know, if you're a civilized person yourself, you would do the same. And we would meet on the battlefield, and it's like a game of chess. They come across the Native Americans and they're guerrilla fighters, you know, it's very personal. And when you think about the intent, um, one of the things Roxanne doesn't talk about in this book that I found very telling that she left out is the atrocities, like how gruesome the killing by the Native Americans was. And I do believe, and of course none of us are there, it's so hard to sift through all this, that those killings probably were gruesome. I'm hearing about the Comanches, like they gang-raped almost every woman. like nine months pregnant women, scalp people alive, pinned them to the ground, tore their guts out, cut out their babies. Um, and the main stories we hear about white people doing this come after that. Like it kind of started in Texas with the Comanches. Um, Derek Jensen says, all writers are propagandists. And I think that's kind of a necessity. Like if you write anything, it's at the expense of something else. So I get that Roxanne Dunbar is trying to Create this kind of counter picture to the U.S. history we're taught. But I think the Native Americans were fighting a different kind of war, and to neglect the truths, like she talks about the atrocities in detail of what the whites did and completely leaves out the Native Americans. Now, I personally believe the Native Americans were justified. We were encroaching on their land, they were fighting for their survival. But to completely erase that part of history, I'm not sure is much better than what the whites do to try to justify their history. Um, there was a lot of really gory stuff that the the Indians did, and I think they were trying to make a point. It was a disincentive. you know. That's I don't think it was necessarily a reveling in blood or violence. It was, you don't want to trespass on this land. You said you wouldn't. Here you are. We signed a treaty. We told you to go. You wouldn't go. We've seen the danger. We've seen what happened to the other tribes. So, here, here's what's going to happen if you come on this land. So, I think describing the the violence of both sides doesn't doesn't lose the argument for villainizing the Indians.
1: And I'll just jump in here, kind of as a segue. I think it's also important, and and she really does a good job of going into the history of how did it get to be this way? How did the settlers come here and they just they found crops they found waterways they found improved roads and trade routes and people who were maybe violent maybe generous maybe a little bit of both but how did those people get here and like what the hell was their mindset so Gumby um did you want to talk a little bit about the people that came here and maybe like what they were dealing with back in Europe
0: well I mean let's see what you've got researched here Well, I think you've got the book fresh in your mind. One thing that I wanted to talk about right when it was in my mind right now is scalping, um, which kind of is tied into your question. But scalping, that's something that depending on what book you read, either the white people brought it or the Native Americans were already doing it. It sounds like the current research seems to indicate that it actually might have uh, evolved independently in both cultures. And at first I found that pretty damn unlikely, but then I thought about The Sword that was you know, independently created in cultures that don't seem to have a lot of uh, overlap, though maybe they do, who knows. The bow and arrow, so we see this in history, that in different parts of the world at, at certain times, the same invention will just kind of pop up Um but what it does sound like is that the scalping, when it was brought over here, was greatly exacerbated by the French. They started putting bounties on scalps, and so scalping really picked up. It became less of a ceremonial um, part of warfare between tribes and more of a commerce. So like any commerce, it, it expands, it grows.
1: Yeah, if you want to read a little bit more about scalping, because who wouldn't, um, <laughs> there was an article that I looked up. And it was called The Unkindest Cut, or Who Invented Scalping. And it was written by James Axtell, who we have a book on that we'll probably do another audio report on in another season, um, and William Sturdevant. But in that article, they talked about the Scythians and how there was a citation from Herodotus on of the Scythians scalping in AD 879. But there were also images and language that was associated with scalping in the pre-Columbian culture more so than in Europe. And who cares because the Europeans came over here and were doing disgusting things and were doing things back in Europe that were equal if not worse than scalping. But going back to Europe and the scalping there and the practice that Gumby that people had on the Irish did you want to talk about that
0: I mean I'll talk about what I remember I thought one of the more interesting parts of the book was that a lot of the things that we and I say we that's something else I'm trying to change my vocabulary on Derek Jensen talks about identifying with the abuser you know that we didn't do it like we need to recognize the people that did it and separate ourselves from that so we can have a different philosophy I somewhat agree with that Um, so they did, practiced a lot of this stuff on the Irish as the, what the English were coming over.
1: I think the, the British asked or they recruited the Ulster Scots to move into Ireland and effectively exterminate the people in Northern Ireland.
0: Yeah. And they were already putting them on reservations. They were scalping the Irish. So... This was kind of the atmosphere of the, the, the settlers first coming over to America, and a new idea had recently been promoted, which was the idea of private land ownership. Before that, it was the the commons, you know, like everybody shared land, a lot like the Indians. Um So kind of a new strategy, a new method that the rich could become even more powerful was suddenly there's land ownership. Actually, this land, all this land that you were uh, hunting and using, it actually belongs to this guy. And because you want to use it, you're actually in debt to him already. So it was sort of a double win for the rich. And of course, the rich had soldiers at their disposal. They could enforce this. Um... Now, not only do you lose the land that now belongs to somebody else, you're in debt because you, how are you going to live without some kind of land to borrow, to use? So this was a method that was being used against the Irish, against poor people all over Europe. So when the the floodgates open to the new world, it's this opportunity. And what do you think the rich do? The rich tell all the poor people, here's your opportunity. Now you too can own land. Go <laughs> over there. There's land everywhere. Let's downplay that there are people living there. You know, yeah, there's people there. You know, if we could put in a corner, we'll admit there's people over there. But so far, they've been friendly. I mean, look, we've sent ships over there. They've come back. They're very uh, interesting people. Um, But just go over there, you know, settle the land, and it's yours. So um, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz talks about that as being actually a colonizing military strategy to use the settlers as a wall You start putting the settlers there and these shelters, these forts, these houses they build spread and spread and spread and then the rich and powerful can come behind them. And those houses actually form sort of a wall of civilization spreading and encroaching on indigenous lands. And the first people who have to fight, who have to really um, haggle with these people are the poor people, the settlers, who are desperate. They've already been scalped, put on reservations. They've been screwed over by the rich. This is their only chance. And what are they thinking about? Are they thinking about high ideals like colonization? Are they thinking about the rights of indigenous people? Hell no. They're thinking about their families that were starving in Ireland. This is their only chance. They better fight, and they better win this fight. So I think that's an interesting... Part of history, you know. It's so easy to look for the bad guys. Long time ago, it was the Indians. They were the savages, and our heroes were General Custer and, you know, the cavalry. And then we flip flopped it. Now all the the white people are the bad guys, and the noble savage. They didn't even fight wars. They tapped each other with little acoustics, and, ooh, I could have hurt you there. But the truth is somewhere in the middle, you know. <laughs> like, it wasn't about good guys and bad guys. It was about desperate people. And for we we, we want to look for bad guys. I find the bad guys in the white camp, in the old camp, but not all of the settlers. The rich people, they're the ones behind the scenes, and those poor people that came over here to try to get a chance to get land, even they don't get to keep it for long, because now the laws you know, come behind them, and they're suddenly paying taxes. They're sort of renting the land. The land is not really theirs. So as usual to me, it's kind of a story about all of us getting fucked by the rich.
1: Yeah, and that's all to say that we live... Even currently, but have lived in a culture of conquest. And that's one of the headings that Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz has in her book. We live in a culture of conquest. Um, The first European peasantry uh, had lost their land. They were probably more likely to be indentured servants when they came over here. So they were not only clearing the path for the rich, but they had to pay the rich back. Because they didn't have the money to get over here on the boat. And if they were lucky to keep their lives um, once they encountered the people that were already here, the indigenous, the natives, um, maybe they could have a chance at fortune. But more than likely they wouldn't because the rich would come over here and buy up all the land and then try to sell it back to the settlers for a higher price. So... Yeah, like Gumby said, the rich are typically the ones that are the biggest assholes.
0: And I don't see this as a racial statement. You know, when I say the rich people on the white people side, I see this as a population statement. It's more of a way of life. I think there would be people among the Indians that would have just as quickly exploited. As a matter of fact, there were people that uh, tried to use the white people as a weapon against their enemy tribes, and that came around and bit them in the ass. But when you're in a small tribe, it's not easy to be rich because all the people know you. You're their neighbor. You start taking more than your share. People start hating you. You know, you don't get to do that for very long. it's It's kind of self-controlling. You don't need big arbitrary laws or federal government. You just need neighbors. You need a small tribe of people. In Europe, A long time ago, the population had exploded and was continuing to explode, so you didn't have close neighbors. You had distant politicians, distant royalty, distant powerful rich people, and they had soldiers that weren't your neighbors either, so that gave them a measure of control. So I don't think it was like, I don't know, a weakness of race, like the white people are just bad and the Indians are good. I think the white way of living, which the whites didn't all, always live, as I pointed out with the Irish, you know the whites had recently a lot of the whites had just lost their own battle against this way of life and been inducted like the Indians were about to to encounter themselves
1: something something else that was used as uh I guess at the same time that the wealthy in Europe were kind of using the quote unquote new world as an escape valve to send the poor people, uh, there was an increase in interest in Calvinism. And not to bore you too much, but in Calvinism, uh, people believe that they're the chosen ones. And if you become wealthy, then that must mean that like God shines upon you. And those people were also thinking that they were helping the savages if they could turn them into white people or into the, you know, civilized, the the noble uh, white man. So religion was also spurring people on into the new world because here was their chance at fortune. They must be, you know, the chosen ones by God. And when they're encountering these savage natives, they're wanting to, like, get the devil out of them, whether that's by killing them or by assimilating them into their way of life.
0: So what did, uh, I, I keep calling her Roxanne as if she's my buddy or yeah. something.
1: oh, Roxy. Um,
0: what did Miss Ortiz have to say about the melting pot? I remember that was something she talked about in the book.
1: Well, I remember, this is why I wrote it down. I remember when I was growing up in, you know, I, oh, God, I want to say it was in elementary school. There was this huge debate about is the culture in the United States a melting pot or is it a tossed salad?
0: Or is it a clusterfuck?
1: Yeah, those. but those were the two options. Melting pot or tossed salad. Now maybe you're about the same age as me and you remember this debate in especially social studies classes. And I always thought of it like the tossed salad. Um, there were different components of it, but everything together made it a salad, and it made it really good. Imagine, like, having a really good salad with, like, cranberries and feta cheese and, like, nice juicy carrots. Anyway. And so
0: the difference is that the salad, like, everybody retains their individuality, but it works together, whereas the melting pot, everybody just kind of loses their uniqueness and becomes the same thing.
1: And I remember, now check this out. This is propaganda right here. So I remember in my class, the teachers were making such a big deal about melting pot like they were really trying to force everyone into saying melting pot is better like they even lined us up and they were like which one do you think it is melting pot or tossed salad and everybody had to say melting pot and then they did this thing where they took crayons and they started melting them like in a little you know whatever wax melting thing it was like this whole big propaganda thing to brainwash us into thinking that everyone being like brown because the although crayons were like turning into a brown color ironically um that was a good thing but what I'm saying or what I was thinking at that age and still now is yes it's great to be brown it's great to be blue purple green yellow red white etc because we all can retain our own uniqueness and we can respect each other and we can all kind of Live our in our way.
0: I don't think either one works, and I'll get back around to that if we have <laughs> the time. But what did Roxanne have to say about that? I don't that?
1: remember. I don't think she talked about it at all. Oh. <laughs> I put that in there because I wanted to talk about it in reference to how the settlers were trying to assimilate the Indians and therefore erasing their individuality.
0: Yeah, and again, like one of my favorite parts of this book is the bookends. Um, hopefully, we'll talk more about where this all leads us to nowadays, but one of the unique things about this book for me was the the talk about the Scotch-Irish and the settlers when they came over here. Before that book, I don't think I'd ever really given much thought to um, colonization in Europe. To me, it was something that happened when we reached these shores. I knew there were problems in Europe. But I didn't realize it was the same freaking strategy evolving, that my own ancestors um, had suffered many of the same things, right down to the scalping, right down to the reservations. You know, I've been taught to feel pretty damn bad about being white my whole life. And (laughs) depending on how you stand on that, part of that is justified. We'll talk a little bit about like our responsibility with this culture that we have that we didn't create on in the podcast. But um yeah, I just found that really interesting to think that my own people got erased, got fought and lost against this huge colonizing force that was just numbers and numbers and propaganda, and they swarmed us until we eventually had to, you know, come into the reservation and become them. And now we're so thoroughly indoctrinated that. You know, we pit ourselves against whatever the latest indigenous tribe is that's the latest members to get indoctrinated into this colonizing force. And I like to remember that my roots go to a fierce tribe that was fighting as
1: well. Oh, my goodness. All right. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Where can I segue to? Well, you were talking about how your, like the people, your ancestors were Quite possibly erased or made to assimilate. Not um, quite
0: possibly. I well, yeah. The fact yeah, that I'm I in this so. culture and I can't give you a tribal name where I came from—they were erased.
1: So something that um, Roxanne talks about is the concept of firsting and lasting, and this was something that driving, like when we were driving across the United States, we noticed or I noticed in a lot of those historical markers. So as you're driving, maybe on a scenic highway, or if you go to a rest stop, often they'll have these pieces of history that <laughs> are always told from a very specific perspective. Um, but you can tell which perspective that is because it's always, you know, this land was first founded or first discovered in, you know, 1692 or 1743 or something like that, and you're, you're like, well. I mean, weren't there people already here? Whether they decided that they discovered it or not, um, I think there were people that were already existing in this place. And the other concept is lasting or, or making things the last of. So like the last of the Mohicans, just basically putting an end to Indians before they are completely wiped out because there are still people of indigenous or Indian heritage in this land, but in our narrative, we're the ones that find things and discover things, and it's such a shame because, you know, Ishii was the last Indian of his kind, and we'll close the book on that because that's the end of their history. Now everybody's just like us, so it's okay, but I found that to be interesting Um, Just because, like I said, I never thought about these concepts of how we view history. And I just keep going back to that because I think this book really blew my mind on on that concept. Gumby? Yes? Uh, Would you like to talk about um, how people viewed reservations? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I mean I know people don't like them what what specifically that's a, what you got in mind
1: Well in the book um Roxanne mentioned that reservations at different times in history were viewed differently so I don't really even understand the concept of reservations now I know driving through the United States we encountered so many signs like now entering this nation or this reservation or this land of indigenous peoples, whatever the name of their um, nation was. And now we're leaving it, and now we're entering another one, and now we're leaving another one. And it always seemed to be around pieces of land that were either really arid and rocky and just seemed like really rough terrain or like really high walls of a canyon. And it was beautiful land. But it just always seemed to be in very inconvenient places, at least if you were trying to live like the on the East Coast. And what I also noticed around the reservations were um, maybe a national forest or some sort of other land that was purchased by the government. So it was almost like, here's a little tiny speck of land for your people who once roamed maybe several states worth of land. Um, and, oh, by the way, we're going to put a road, an interstate through here, and if you don't mind, we're also going to mine or drill for oil, like, right next to your reservation, so you're probably going to have your water poisoned by our actions, but, I mean, at least you have a reservation. And back, in, back when reservations were starting to be created it was viewed as like a benevolent gift of the United States to give the land to the the indigenous people. And that is such a slap in the face because that was their land to begin with. And as it happened in history, after a while, people started looking at it like the Indians were getting a free ride. It was no longer a benevolent gift of the... Uh, United States, it was man. Why do we have to pay for these people? Why are they zapping our resources and and sucking all of our money dry out of the government? So that was just a, a complete turnaround from what this land originally was.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm still thinking about that bigger picture. You know, of we've got you, you imagine the the Indian fighters and the the slaveholders for that matter. Um, I think about 1700s and 1800s America as two main large indigenous groups from uh, different parts of the world, the Africans being brought over and put into slavery, which uh, isn't mentioned a lot in this book, but I think she talks a little about that. And, of course, the wars against the and the genocide against the indigenous people, the Indians here. Um, And I think about who's fighting those wars. You know, it's composed of Scotch-Irish mainly. Those are the main settlers who, as I just talked about, they suffered many of those same things themselves. And then I think about nowadays and how many Native Americans and black people do we have joining the army? What do you think the army's still doing? Mm -hmm. Like this colonization continues. So, you know, at the same time, there's somebody from a tribe that's very proud. Like I served the U.S. Army. I served you know, for my country. That's kinda of where the Irish were that were fighting the Indian wars in the first freaking place, you know, like I was downtrodden, I was like barely making it, and I served my country. Like, damn it, I'm that that should prove that I'm a worthy citizen by killing the next group of people that need to be colonized. And now we're going over to all these people who, like I mean there was Vietnam, there's the Philippines, that was a lot sooner after the uh, the Civil War than I'd realized. And they're starting to be composed of buffalo soldiers, black people that had just been ripped from their tribes that were getting colonized. And now they're the ones that are the foot soldiers to colonize the next group of people. It's just this ugly cycle. And we need to stop making it a race issue. There's something like, I love how Freddie Perlman to bring in another book talks about it. We've created this Leviathan, our civilization that just eats people. Um, God, and if we could all get on the same side and fight that, but anyway, that was kind of a, a side rant. It was just a thought that occurred to me. <laughs> well, it's
1: interesting that you brought that up because, yeah, in the book, Roxanne does talk about how not only the freed slaves or Buffalo soldiers were fighting against the indigenous people. And why would they do that? Like, it would it would make more sense to us looking back in history. Why didn't they all get together and fight the to make it easier, fight the old whitey, you know? <laughs> like
0: Including the poor white people, though, too. Right. I mean, they were getting screwed. Even the original Klan's members, that wasn't like, for the most part, rich people. That was a lot of poor white people who were looking for an outlet. Like, it must be the black people's fault. You know, let's get them. God, if all the poor people could have gotten together and realized they have a common enemy, we'd be living in a different world right now.
1: Yeah, the wealthy. Um, but yeah, they. she mentioned in the book, like, a lot of black people... Didn't they either didn't read or they didn't have an understanding of what was going on with the U.S. government. So when they started fighting for the government, they had no awareness of the genocide that was happening to the indigenous people. Um, and as far as Native Americans fighting in the military, she also mentioned that it's interesting that a person from a nation – like an indigenous nation of this land would want to fight in the military but if you think about it there is this there is this hole that's in their culture that they don't have a place for warriors for angry young men uh, to have an outlet and so what better marketing for the marines or the military in general than to say like you know come fight for us and and that would be their outlet. That would be a place for their warrior uh, in in their culture that's no longer there.
0: I remember another person she talked about that uh, kind of represents uh, an idea I wanted to talk more about was Tecumseh. And one of the remarkable things about Tecumseh to me was that he was a great unifier of tribes, that there was this internal conflict between so many tribes. You know, we were... Some authors call say that all Native American tribes were warring nations. I don't like the word war because to me that implies genocide, a finality. A war is a degree of violence. Now, from my understanding, between tribes, there was a measure of violence. For the most part, it didn't wipe people out, but it was a way to keep your tribe strong, to keep them alert, to prove yourself. Like You often were thankful for your enemies. You didn't want to wipe them out, but you did want to... Uh, really make an impression on them. And a lot of times that looked very violent by our cultural standards. It wasn't all acoustics and, you know, sissy smacks. It was sometimes like scalping, you know, it was torture. Um, but that was used against the Native Americans because instead of unifying, like I mentioned that common enemy, I, mean, I was just reading about the the Comanche or the Nur- Nurmurna as they pr- prefer to be called. Um, I think it was the Tonkawa? but they were used as scouts. I might have that tribe look wrong, but they used a tribe that felt wronged by the Nirmirna to be the chief trackers and scouts against the Comanche. That war against the Comanche might have gone on a lot longer. It might have looked a lot different if there weren't expert trackers, people that knew the land, that already lived there, that hated the Comanche. So people were so stuck in the small picture, again, that small picture versus larger picture, It took somebody like Tecumseh to see the larger picture, like, whoa, wait a minute. We can fight about this crap we've been fighting about later. Right now, if we don't get together, there's not going to be anybody left to fight. So to me, that's uh, a big tragedy of this that happens with all races, is we get so stuck in the small picture. That Mexican guy came across the border and stole my job, small picture. Why are you even desperate to f- to have a job to to barely scrape by to get paid this low paying job that you have to compete with an illegal immigrant? You know, there's somebody doing that to both of you. And uh, yeah, I was just really glad when she talked about Tecumseh because he's a hero of mine. I love it every now and then when you see in history somebody step outside and see a bigger picture and like, whoa, guys, we gotta we gotta look at this differently. <laughs> and Tecumseh was definitely that kind of that kind of person.
1: Well, I was going to save this for another section, but I guess we're um, already almost at 45 minutes here. So I'll go ahead and bring it up as a, another segue to what you just said as um, as far as working together. Now, I had a few things listed in, in this little segment called Why Do We Not Learn About Blank in History? And one of them was the Green Corn Rebellion. And it's funny because on one of our hitchhiking trips – one of our rides, one of our more crazy rides, um, had asked us, kind of in a very um, conspiracy theorist way, he kind of looked at Gumby and I and and asked us what we knew about the Green Corn Rebellion. And at that point, we were like, um...
0: (laughs) I think he just made that
1: up. uh, I think he might just be, like, high or something. But there actually was something called the Green Corn Rebellion, and I'll tell you what it was, and this is from the book. Uh, So tens of thousands protested and carried out acts of civil disobedience in August of 1917. And these protesters were comprised of white, black, and Muscogee tenant farmers. And so here they were in eastern and southern Oklahoma counties, and they took up arms to stop conscription or like mandatory signing up for World War I, which they considered the rich man's war. And they had a larger goal of overthrowing the U.S. government. And this was the Green Corn Rebellion. And they spent an entire day of blowing up oil pipelines and bridges in southeastern Oklahoma before they were finally put down by a heavily armed posse that was supported by police and militia. But you don't ever learn about that shit in history. Green Corn Rebellion, working together. Love it. And while I'm on the subject of why didn't we learn about that in history, I'll I'll go ahead and tell you the others that were just in the book that blew my mind. The largest mass hanging was ordered by President Lincoln when a group of Dakota dissidents, um, in their eyes, rose up against German and Scandinavian settlers. And they were finally pacified and 300 prisoners uh, were taken, but... President Lincoln didn't want to kill them all, so he just said, you know what, why don't you just pick 38 random out of the 300? And that was the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. Another one, over 100,000 California Native people were exterminated over the course of 25 years. And Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz says, this is quite possibly the worst demographic disaster of all time. Now, those words, kind of propaganda, kind of biased, we're not sure, but that's a lot of freaking people, and I don't think it's uh, it's right that it's not mentioned in history books that I've encountered thus far. Um, there was the Second Seminole War, I believe there were three Seminole Wars, and one of them the second one lasted 7 years that was the longest foreign war waged by the United States until the Vietnam War I've never heard of no Seminole wars had you
0: Well I have but I sure didn't learn about it in school
1: Yeah and like closer to this time now I think it was in 19 I think it was in 1972 there was a group of indigenous people who were protesting they're mostly like college students and professors and they took over alcatraz island in san francisco bay and oh wait i was gonna read something gumby entertain them for a moment let me see if i can find it
0: well our names are <laughs> no,
1: that's
0: all i had um Let's see what you got on this. Well, another thing that I thought was interesting is she brought up Redskins, or is that something you just wanted to talk about?
1: No, she did bring up Redskins.
0: Okay, so this is something that gets brought up is the Washington Redskins. You know, the fact that we have a, a professional football team that uses a slang word, a derogatory term for Indians, and still gets to use it. Um, This is widely protested. And when I first heard this, I rolled my eyes and I said, please, you know, with all the things happening in the world, you want me to give a shit about a football team? (laughs) And to be honest, to some extent, I still believe that. You know, there are priorities to me that are more demanding than that. But it's interesting because we went to a talk in Flagstaff, actually, and this got brought up again by two, were they Navajo women? About what? The talk we went to in Flagstaff. Oh, yeah, they yeah they were. Navajo, they brought up this redskin thing. And though they didn't use the word, the N-word, I'm going to use it because I want you to hear the shock value of it. Imagine if we had a football team called the Nashville Niggers. Now, that would not be stood for. You probably, like, might have just heard me say that and kind of like, oh, God. You know, that's the way it sounds to some indigenous people, redskins. And in a way, it's even worse than that because redskins doesn't just mean like Indians. It actually refers back to a time in history when scalps were considered money. You know, bring in a bunch of scalps, a bunch of bloody scalps. And because they were bloody, they were called redskins. So it's not even what I thought it was when I was a kid. Like, eh, kind of a, you know, a insulting way to say they've got red skin. No, the red was the blood on it. They were talking about bloody scalps. Like we say greenbacks. It was like, all right, how many redskins you got? I'll trade you. So it really is a shockingly violent double standard that that name gets to stand and a name like, you know, I'm not going to throw the word on you again, but the Nashville N-word would never cut mustard in this climate. Why is it that we still have this double standard? I found that to be a really interesting reflection on us because most of the white people I know like to think that, oh, we don't think like that anymore. But what is that reflecting about us? Did you find what you're looking for? Uh,
1: I did. I don't know if I can read all of it with the time that we have left. But I did like how in my notebook That's
0: like just go long.
1: in my notebook I had different sections and a lot of them, um, without being too imaginative, I just put like a big bracket and I just called it Indians getting fucked um, just mm-hmm. over and over again by our government. Uh, you know what? I'll read a little bit of this. This goes back to the seizure of Alcatraz Island. I think it was in 1972. But the people that did it, they wrote the proclamation um, for all tribes. And this is what they wanted to have uh, kind of for the American people to hear. We, the Native Americans, reclaimed the land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land, and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We will give to the inhabitants of this island a portion of the land for their own to be held in trust by the American Indians' government and by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs to hold in perpetuity for as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea. We will further guide the inhabitants in the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our life ways in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers up from their savage and unhappy state. Now, it goes on, but I just love the just comedy of that because that is exactly what we did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way they turn that around, you know, and, like, how do you like it?
1: <laughs> and, and just, uh, we recently watched this documentary called Red Cry, and it was specifically about the Sioux, and now there's different members of the Sioux nation, the Lakota, the Nakota, I think, and the Dakota. I could be wrong about that, and I'm sorry, Um, but there was a treaty that they mentioned over and over again from 1868, and in the Indigenous People's History book, they bring it up too, and just what, oh, if you just want to really get upset, (laughs) You should read. I mean, no, like wringing somebody's neck. If you want to hear about what our government did to the people of the Lakota, Dakota and Nakota nations, um, read up on that because the United States broke the treaty just so that they could sell off more of the Indian land to make money. And not only did they do that, not only did they lie over and over again, they didn't even honor their own treaty, but what did they put on the most sacred site, Pahasapa, the Black Hills? What did they do? Uh,
0: They put the president's faces, big white faces on it.
1: Yeah, so Indians getting fucked over and over and over again. Be ready for that when you read this book, because that's what happened. Um, So, yeah, that's my section there, Indians Getting Fucked. Um, God, Gumby?
0: Yeah, there's so many interesting points to this book. One thing I want to make sure that we talk about, um, whether we talk about it right now or make time for it, is uh, the language that is used by the Army to this day that remembers the colonizing strategies Mm. um, and the places that we are now. I was really shocked when she started talking about all the countries that we have military bases in. They don't tell you this on the news. They don't tell you this in school. You really have to, like, find this. You have to want to learn it yourself. Um, There's so much conditioning, so much propaganda that they just give to you on a silver platter. Like, they put it right in your face. And then there's other things that, no, we're not going to hide it because that'll give it power, you know. And then you'll have a good argument that, like, oh, why'd you hide it? But we're really not going to make it, like, something that you want to bump into either unless you're really looking for it. And one of those things is all the military bases. Like, we are a colonizing force to this day. Um,
1: I can read them off if yeah, you want. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so it, it occurred to me a number of years ago on our local news stations, right around the holidays, right around Christmas and Thanksgiving especially, that they would have these messages from the troops, our troops, because they're our troops. We pay for them. Um whether we want to or not,
0: and they're fighting for our freedom.
1: And they're fighting for our freedom in uh, so many different countries. And I wondered, like, why are there people stationed in Germany and in, you know, Okinawa, Japan? Apparently, a
0: whole lot of brown people have to die for my freedom. I'm still trying to figure out what uh, they mean by freedom.
1: Yeah. So this was uh, this is quoted from. The book, the indigenous peoples' book. At the beginning of the 21st century, the U.S. operated more than 900 military bases around the world 287 in Germany, 130 in Japan, 106 in South Korea, 89 in Italy, 57 in the British Isles, 21 in Portugal, and 19 in Turkey. Additional bases or installations are in Aruba, Australia, Djibouti, Egypt, Israel, Singapore, Thailand, Kyrgyzstan, Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Crete, Sicily, Iceland, Romania, Bulgaria, Honduras, Colombia, Cuba, which is Guantanamo Bay, among many other locations in some 150 countries, along with the recently added ones in Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: And do you think they want us there? Are we there to help, like, protect the people? I mean, why do you think we have military bases there?
1: We're still invading to help them.
0: And another poignant part, it's interesting, she talked about first and lasts. It's the first and last in the bigger picture that I found the most interesting. Talked about the uh, the colonizing aspect of Europe before it even came over here. And I'm interested in You know, in 1876 was one of the last great big battles between the Plains Indians, led by Crazy Horse, and the U.S. Army. Um, After that, like, there's been a resistance going the whole time. We don't hear as much about that, including Alcatraz and the American Indian movement, um, things that you have to dig a little bit deeper to find. But the resistance is still going. These indigenous people, these Indians are still here, and many of them are still fighting. You know, they're not just resigned to be on the the reservations, like the stereotype, like they're all drunk and living in trailers and just uh, whatever. No, there's a lot of people that are still actively fighting, including for their autonomy, to be not part of the United States of America. Um, And I found that really interesting. And what did the U.S. Army do? Like, you know, when we got here, our, our ancestors, the white settlers, there was a certain way of fighting a war and it didn't work. So we started adopting guerrilla warfare. And where do you think we learned guerrilla warfare from? The indigenous people. They didn't stand up in in rows and lines and all this crap that they did in England. They hid behind trees. They found their opportunities. They made the best use of what they had um, with smaller groups of people and a lot of times inferior weaponry. So as soon as the military is shaped, is sort of evolves in this genocidal warfare to colonize what is now the united states of america it starts adopting the names of indians for stuff do you have
1: <laughs> oh shit i was looking it up well you could this was the code name for when they were trying to assassinate or yeah. when they did assassinate when
0: they assassinated osama bin laden the code name for that was geronimo <laughs> i mean what a disgusting irony that is you know the very army that uh brought Geronimo in that was his enemy that fought Geronimo is now using his name as a code word we have um apache helicopters we have terms like
1: indian country for indian enemy.
0: country and somebody being off the reservation if you look in a military manual these are still things that are right there you know like this this terminology that was coined during the indian wars in the 1800s Our army, our military still remembers like it's it's a very thin veneer stretched over colonialism with this kind of empty propaganda about what are we fighting for? We're fighting for freedom, freedom to do what freedom to fuck the rest of the world. I mean,
1: (laughs) oh, I found it. I found it. Yeah, it says. um, So they were talking about uh, Geronimo as the the name of the mission to kill Osama bin Laden, an Indian country to designate enemy territory. But it also identifies, the military identifies their killing machines and operations with such names as the UH UH-1 BC Iroquois, the OH-58D Kiowa, the OV-1 Mohawk, OH-6 Cayuse, AH AH-64 Apache, S-58H-34 Choctaw, the UH UH-60 Black Hawk, Thunderbird, and Rolling Thunder. And the last of these is the military name given to the relentless carpet bombing of Vietnam peasants in the mid-1960s. Fuck that shit.
0: Yeah, it's like a matter of pride. It's almost a matter of like putting it in your face, like killing a deer and hanging its head on your wall.
1: Oh, and let me cut in here. I wanted to say this because I know we're running out of time here, but we always hear from everywhere in the media and in school and from our politicians that we are a nation of immigrants. Now, that sounds great. Hey, first they came for the immigrants. No, first they came for the indigenous people.
0: Yeah, there's all these signs around here. I don't know if they're widespread in the nation like other people would be like, oh, yeah, I've seen that sign. But uh, there's these signs that say, first they came for the immigrants, which is a quote from someone during World War II. Um, I believe it was in reference to the Jews. I think so. Yeah. And I always want to add to the sign, like right above it. First, they killed the indigenous people.
1: Then the immigrants came.
0: That's (laughs) why we made the space and supposedly had the space for the immigrants to fill in these empty spaces, this terra nullius.
1: Yeah. And the concept of having a nation of immigrants completely leaves out the genocide of the original inhabitants. And fuck that shit. Well, since our time
0: is short, is there any other, like, I don't care if we go a little long, is there any other um, last points you want to make? If you don't like the length of the podcast, pause it.
1: (laughs) Um, I just wanted to kind of, like, finish this little section here. So can I do that? All right, let me see.
0: Wrap it up. All
1: right, so in the book, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, she has, I mean... She has a point. Come on, what the hell did it? Her
0: point is. Well, she's looking for that point. I want to say one of, my, <laughs> one of my critiques of this book is it's not the easiest book to read. Oh, um, yeah. It seems like Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz hates a period at the end of a sentence almost <laughs> as much as she hates colonialism. Yeah! I mean, there are some run on, like, intellectualized, like she's talking to other professors and trying to oppress them sentences. So. I did not have a lot of fun reading this book but the information some of it was really unique and uh, if this is a topic that interests you and even if it's not like if you just get some of the the points I think it's stuff we all need to know because this is our heritage if you're an American or even if you're a a member of the world because let's face it Teresa just right off the list of all the places America has military bases if you're here in this podcast you're affected by the United States Yeah. this is history and these are facts that everybody should know um and God, like I was saying about the poor people, whatever you do, don't join the fucking military. That's what they keep doing. They've been doing it for centuries is using the last wave of people that got colonized against the next wave of people.
1: Yeah.
0: So if you're like – especially if you're a black person – well, I, I wouldn't even say that. But I'm just thinking of the last people, you know, the the African-Americans, the, the Indians that are now fighting in the – that are joining the military. Oh, to- the
1: Hispanics were – Norwegian war against this,
0: Yeah, and and what are we going to do when we decimate those people, when we destroy their way of life, and they've got nothing to do but to become us? And by the way, when they become us, where do they start? The fucking bottom. <laughs> so they got nothing else to do but join the military in the hope to have an opportunity so they can kill the next group of people. Jesus Christ, when does a whole fucking group of people get smart enough to to stop that? And I shouldn't say smart enough. I mean, desperation drives people mad. So I don't know. I just find the whole damn thing so sad.
1: All right, so I guess these are kind of the closing thoughts I have. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz obviously wrote this book because she cared about sharing the history of the United States from an indigenous people's perspective, not necessarily an individual indigenous person, but just explaining the atrocities of what happened to the indigenous people and not leaving out anything just for the sake of uh, making the U.S. look like saints. But she also had a premise at the beginning of her book, how might acknowledging the reality of U.S. history work to transform society? And there are two things that I wanted to read. Um, We actually read a book by Jack Forbes. Um, I think it was called Columbus and Other Cannibals. It was not the first time, but the first book that I've read that really explained the concept of Wetaco. Um, so check that out. But in her book, she says, the late native historian Jack Forbes always stressed that while living persons are not responsible for what their ancestors did, they are responsible for the society that they live in, which is a product of that past. And... To follow that up, she even included kind of, um, I don't want to say a hope or a wish, but I just really like this. I hope I don't cry. Um, So here's what she says. Indigenous peoples offer possibilities for life after empire, possibilities that neither erase the crimes of colonialism nor require the disappearance of the original peoples colonized under the guise of including them as individuals. That process rightfully starts by honoring the treaties of the United States that were made with indigenous nations, by restoring all sacred sites starting with the Black Hills and including most federally held parks and land and all stolen sacred items and body parts and by payment of sufficient reparations for the reconstruction and expansion of native nations. Now, she also says something about reparations, um, I'll get to that maybe in just a second. But she says, in the process, the continent will be radically reconfigured physically and psychologically. For the future to be realized, it will require extensive educational programs and the full support and active participation of the descendants of settlers, enslaved Africans, and colonized Mexicans, as well as immigrant populations. So basically everybody um, in this land. So, what she said about reparations, and I find this really interesting. I'm not saying everyone, because I can't speak for everyone, but it sounded to me a lot like indigenous people, they don't want the money. There's several cases of them just leaving the money in an interest-bearing account. I don't know why they still trust the U.S. government with that, but they want their land back. They don't even want to sell the natural resources of which they have, like, 80% of the uranium in the United States on their land because they know that taking those resources out of the ground is going to cause an ecological disaster, even more so than what's already been unleashed on their land. All they want is their land back that they had from the treaties. That's all they want. So give them their fucking land back. 1868.
0: Yeah, and white people and... No, I shouldn't even say white people. Like, I don't think it's about race anymore. Um, rich people. Yeah. We're, we're even, like, most people don't think they're rich. Black people, Asian people, if you're fucking listening to this, you probably have some money. If you're living in a dirt floor hut, you probably ain't listening to this little podcast. <laughs> you
1: so, never know.
0: Yeah, you never know. There are people in Kenya apparently listening, so. And, Nepal. Maybe. Wow, really? Maybe.
1: <laughs> when they have power.
0: Yeah. But, god damn it, you derailed.
1: <laughs> rich people.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Cue the crickets. I don't know.
1: The train has left the station into indigenous territory.
0: Oh, I would say, like as Teresa was saying, give the land back. What that would involve, it's not such an easy thing to do because you know why we have to give the land back? Because we now inhabit the land. Mm -hmm. And if you don't directly inhabit the land, there's probably a business on the land maybe that ships groceries to your favorite grocery store. There's something. We have to change the way we live. Um, and I want to say, as we're kind of wrapping this up, we're just a couple of white people trying to like sort our way through this information. I feel like we need to talk about stuff. We need to have dialogues. Even if we're scared of sounding really freaking ignorant, if we're scared of being offensive, um, we got to take that risk. Because I think the worst thing is to keep not talking about it. Mm. That serves all the wrong people. So if we got to fucking go out there and just say stupid shit and get corrected by people, I say let's get the discussion moving. And especially if you're an Indian and you're hearing this and something like just is totally off base, please write in or call in or give us a message. I would love to hear what you think about this stuff. Um, we've been to a couple talks. We're trying to. I'm not good with people at all. You know, I've heard a lot of. Uh, Indians say that what they really want is for white people to start getting to know them, to realize that they're still here. I don't do that very well. Survivance. And it's, yeah, survivance. And it's not a matter of being racist against Indians. It's a matter of I'm just so sick of this fucking world and the people that, that live this way that I don't really get to know much of anybody. I'm kind of <laughs> reclusive. So that's a very hard thing for me to do. I would like to be better at that. Um, And I understand some of the issues that I hear get brought up are about like civil rights or about equality. But to me, we got to stop fighting to get a piece of the cake and reject the fucking cake. Nobody should be living like this. We got to like look at a bigger picture. It's not about sharing the cake. The very fact that anybody's eating this cake is sucking the world dry. We need to quit living this way. There's not enough cake to go around for even the people that are already eating it. And they don't have a right to it when other people are suffering. we got to reject this whole damn way of life. Um, and God, I hope something gets us together on that, like, sooner rather than later. Or it's just going to be imposed on all of us, and it's going to be the hard way through. So, any final thoughts, Teresa? Uh,
1: I want them to give the land back to the indigenous people
0: yeah yeah if they said they were going to do that i recognize it would like really hit our affluent lifestyles um but yeah i would be all about that i would definitely be in support of that um so yeah read this book it's got a lot of great information and um hopefully we're getting some discussions and thoughts going about colonialism
1: oh yeah you want to tell them about how they can contact us
0: Sure. Um, You can contact us at
1: www.escapingsociety.com.
0: No, Weebly.com. Ah, www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. Yep, any questions, comments, we'd love to hear from you. And, oh, uh, we need to find... So, one thing we're trying to do is actually bring in more of a dialogue. Oh, I forgot about that, sorry.
1: Yeah, we have had people contact us, and so we're trying to share, like, one, an episode. Um, it's there. It's got to be there, isn't it? I think it's...
0: Okay, so we got John from Houston, Texas, and he writes, I'm well aware of collapse, and no one around me is or seems to care. There are so many distractions that are there to entangle people and keep them in the system. From the political game to mindless TV entertainment, it's all there to keep the masses doing business as usual. I recently became a trucker and I'm single, so I have a good amount of freedom, he writes in the uh, quotes, <laughs> and ability to save money. Thanks for the podcast. I needed something like this. Well, I'm glad you appreciate it, John, and thanks for writing in, and um, yeah, we're kind of in the same boat. We're living simply and able to save up money and kind of trying to figure out ways to just keep resisting, keep finding a new way to live, and brother, it is not easy. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. We run into a lot of, like, challenges all the time, but it's also definitely worthwhile. I'm glad we're we're exploring this. Um, any last?
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that you wrote in, John. And um, we've met a number of truckers, actually, in our journeys hitchhiking and, and just driving around that they have a really good insight on all the whole countryside because they travel it and they see the um, climate change and often people think of truckers and they're like, oh, they don't care about the environment because they're, you know, (laughs) driving these big trucks around. But it's not that they don't care enough not to see it. I mean, you know, most people that say that about truckers are also working jobs that are equally destructive. So I don't hate on truckers. I'm glad whenever we get to talk to somebody that is sharing their experiences of travel. And and thank you very much for writing in.
0: Yeah, and let's get together on some of this stuff. Um, you know, one thing that I really am inspired by when I hear about the, the history of the United States and the Indian people that lived here before is tribe, how they were out there in some of the harshest environments on the prairie and, like I said, reading about the Nurmirna. Um, that's some rough territory out there, but they made it because they stuck together. When you got 150 people that are looking out for each other, nobody feels poor. It's not survival. It's just life. Um, so, yeah, I would love to move back closer to that. So hopefully we'll see you next time or hear from you next time or you hear from us. <laughs> and have a good one. Thanks. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? they tell you to stay, but you don't need to eat it. You can give them the finger.
1: There's no time to think.
0: So, thank you for listening to our song It's not very good and it went kind of long
1: Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone
0: Over that next horizon
1: We ain't got no address